Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Progress in healthcare and medical research requires a lot of data. In the era of big data, health data is among the most valuable and the most private information anyone can have. Two major hurdles with finding quality medical data are access to that data in a private and ethical way, as well as bias on the data due to underrepresentation of women, certain racial or ethnic groups. In this episode, I talked to Denny O'Brien about how Donate Your Data Org and Data Lake are trying to solve this problem with a patient-first approach to sourcing medical data for research. Data Lake is an EU-funded startup creating a global medical data donation system based on blockchain technology with privacy and informed consent as its fundamental pillars. We discuss this data donation framework and how it addresses the issues of privacy, consent, data monetization, and working to minimize biases. Denny explains how they approach patients to opt in, how they vet organizations that request access to this data, and how they plan to expand throughout Europe and the U.S. This is a fascinating conversation on a service that could truly disrupt and revolutionize how medical data is collected and used for research purposes. All right. So, Denny, welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. It's great to have you on as a guest. Thank you very much. I appreciate your invitation and really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah. So let's just kick it off. First of all, can you tell me what is the problem that Data Lake and the Donate Your Data Foundation are trying to solve? Absolutely. So it's it's a broad topic, but it falls into a few categories. So there's a major issue right now when it comes to medical research, and that is uh, twofold. The first is access to medical data, and the second is bias in medical data. So on the access side of things uh, in Europe and in other countries as well, including the US, uh, there's been very little framework for accessing patient medical records and other associated data say in an ethical and private way. And there's always been this discussion between access to data and ethical access to data, patient privacy rights. And until more recently, um, there's really been no, no great solution for both sides. So what at least we've done in Europe is we've created some legislations that allow for the ethical access of medical data based on patients' express consent, because uh, we believe in Europe and, and many other countries do as well, that patients should have a say in whether their data is accessed or not, especially when we're talking about our most private and sensitive data sets, such as our, our medical records or even our genomic data, or if we're talking about biobanks who are dealing with tissue samples, you know, we're talking about very sensitive medical data sets. So access to data has always been an issue. Um, and it's partially, as I said, a, a legal issue, but also a technological issue. And then the other side of things is actually, let's say, even more pressing in the sense that we are moving now into an era of uh, big data and medicine, AI algorithms, robotics, all these kinds of incredible technologies, but they're only as good as the data that they're based on. Unfortunately, the, the situation is that most medical data that is used for studies uh, historically has been of white Western males. Uh, and that's no dig at that uh, demographic because that includes me, but it is a significant problem when we're talking about AI algorithms, for example, that aren't getting the data of women or minorities or ethnic groups. And if that's the case, and, and the, there's a saying in, in programming, which is garbage in, garbage out, and if your 
AI models or your other technologies are being trained on data that is biased, then the output is going to be biased and the product, such as the algorithm, is actually going to underserve or, or, or misserve the, the other demographics who have not been representative. So we have a problem of access and we have a problem of bias. And these two things are absolutely crucial to solve in order for us to kind of go to this next level of Star Trek type technology, medical technology, which we have all of the technologies either in place or currently in development, but without the right data and without access to that data, they cannot succeed. So this is why these are huge pressing issues. And those are the two primary issues that we are seeking to solve. And so what exactly is the core product that Data Lake is offering and how does it address this problem. Absolutely. So what we um, have devised based on this new legislative framework that has come out in Europe and goes into force later this year is actually a technological solution that allow people to verify their identity and then give legal consent to the use of their medical data. So for your listeners, if you consider it such as um, blood donation, for example, that the Red Cross does, what we're trying to build is actually a technological solution and a large database of people who have given or revoked their consent to the use of their data. And by doing this, not only does it fulfill kind of the legal requirements, but also the ethical requirements of asking people permission for their most sensitive data sets. Um, so at its core, what we have built is a data donation framework, data donation technology, which allows people to verify their identity and then with absolute certainty give either or either give or revoke their consent. Uh, and how we're doing that without getting too deep into it is using blockchain technology, which is uh, for those who aren't aware, kind of a, an open ledger that allows you to verify that one set of data has been copied exactly without tampering or without changing. Because one of the big issues that we see with a lot of the private uh, data and tech companies is that you have to try them. And if they say, oh, you just, you know, trust us in our database, we're not using your data, but there's no proof of that. Um, what that actually does is affect adoption. And when you look at the studies on how willing people are to share their data with researchers, depending on the country, it can be as low as 30 to 35% of people being willing to, to share their data. And trust is a major, major element of that. So by using the technology and building the, the tool that we have, what we're saying is you don't actually have to trust us. If you have said, I am a, a donor, or you've revoked even more importantly and said, I do not want my medical data to be used for, for research, you do not have to trust us. You can independently verify that what what we say or that we're doing is actually reflected in our in our databases. Um, and so what we've really done is solve the issue of trust, which is the major roadblock to adoption of this technology. So that's kind of the core product. And then uh, from there, you know, we're, we're building actually an enterprise grade account where uh, other companies, research entities um, who are performing maybe even clinical trials could launch their own instance of this. Um, and basically use the same consent technology that we're using, but within their own their own ecosystem. Um, and you know, uh, your your listeners are probably aware that pharma does a lot. Big pharma does a lot of the research around the world, and you know they have pros and cons, and it's a large debate. But to be honest with you, what this technology actually allows us to do is create the playing fields operating on transparency and openness. Uh, and setting the standard for transparent uh, consent for data use so that there really is no longer any need to trust um, companies or research entities that they are doing or not doing what you have given or not given permission for them to do. If I understand correctly, this is an app that a user can go in and say, give consent to, to donate certain data and then also revoke it. Um, so a couple of questions about that, just 
um, around the details. What is the granularity of consent that a user can give? Let's say if I have blood tests, but I also have, um, you know, medical history around my my feet or something like, can is it, what is the granularity of consent that I can give around my medical data? Absolutely. So what we've tried to build is a flexible system uh, on, let's say, the broad scale. What we're trying to build is a global medical data donation movement so that people might like blood donors or other altruistic um, systems, people can broadly give their consent. So in our current iteration, we have a consent for general medical records. We have a consent for genomic records, for example, um, and people can say yes or no to either one. Um, obviously, we require them to give consent to the treatment or the, the, the processing of their data because that's the, the kind of the, the standard that we need to, to follow. But beyond that, there's a lot of granularity. And, and as I mentioned, we have the kind of this enterprise account where an entity can actually put in any kinds of consent they want. And this is actually one big issue um, that uh, another issue, there's, there's plenty in medical data, uh, which your listeners may not be aware of. But uh, one of the big issues that we have as well is that let's say a patient is participating in clinical trials for new drugs, over time, it becomes actually quite difficult to maintain contact with them. Partially, that's a limited scope of uh, the provider of the clinical trial. Uh, but what, for example, can be used is a broad consent for recontacting after a clinical trial. And what that might actually enable is one, five, ten years down the road, being able to recontact that patient, uh, being able to touch base with them and see if there have been any adverse effects or long-term issues. Um, so it's really quite a flexible system, and it allows you to really put in whatever kind of consent for now related to medical data, but it could, of course, be expanded more broadly. Um, but it really does allow granularity in terms of uh, what consent a patient is able to give. So it's not like you just sign up and uh, all of your data belongs to us. Um, actually, it's, it is quite granular, and people have to expressly give their permission for a certain action or a certain data type to be accessed. And then the other side of that is what the data actually gets used for and what types of research. Is there any say in terms of the target of that data and who uses it? Absolutely. So one really important thing that we've put in place is actually a framework of uh, transparency, but also ensuring that patients have uh, a say in where their data goes. How we're doing that for now is we actually have a coalition of about 40 patient organizations. Uh, these are nonprofits, NGOs and they form our transparency council. And the number one question before any data would even be considered to be sent to a research entity is, is this pro-patient? That is so important to us because we don't want this to just be used, for example, a tobacco company to start developing extra addictive products or even a, um, a healthcare insurance provider who are trying to identify the high cost patients so that they can cut them out of their plan or reduce their, their medical coverage. So the number one kind of litmus test for whether a data could even be sent is going to be, is this pro-patient? Is this for the public good? After that, it has to be legitimate research and development, of course, and it has to, you know, be trying to solve some sort of healthcare issue, find a cure for something. It could be finding better and more effective drugs, safer drugs, um, all kinds of applications. But the number one question is, is this pro-patient? Is this going to harm someone? Is it going to reduce their healthcare? Is it going to reduce their insurance coverage? All of these questions 
are asked by our transparency council and then actually they make the final decision so our foundation is the legal controller of the data we have a responsibility to protect it to ensure it's secure but at the end of the day it is this transparency council of patient organizations who make the final call on whether they believe this is a pro-patient research or not so you would have a hospital or independent researcher or some uh, nonprofit that would come to you and say, we want medical data, and you would decide on who they are, whether or not you want to give them the, the data. Exactly. It really, it really comes down to what their goal is, right? You know, it, what's actually been fantastic is to see how many startups and research entities are actually working on really important cures and treatments and technologies. So one example that I really love to give is a, a company here in Europe who are creating an open source algorithm for heart attack prediction. So it will actually integrate with either biosensors or wearables, and it will look for markers of an upcoming heart attack. And for anyone who is, is aware of this, the time of response to a heart attack is absolutely the one of the most determin determining factors of the outcome. This company could, of course, close source this and license out, you know, at great cost their, their technology to ambulances or, or hospitals or clinics. But in fact, what they've done is said, we're going to open source this. We believe this is going to save lives. And there are countless more examples that, that, that I could give, but that one for me is really kind of one that checks all the boxes. They're working on something really interesting. Uh, it's going to help a lot of people. It does involve actually directly interfacing with someone's bio biometric data, which again, most personal data set. But what they're doing is then open sourcing that and allowing everyone to benefit. And, and that for us really checks all the boxes. Is this probation? Is this going to help the world? And, and do they have the interests of the general public in mind? And, and that's really the, the goal of our foundation and also Data Lake as a technological provider is just to ensure that all of these incredible developments that are happening in the, the realm of medical technology are ultimately going to benefit and not harm patients. Just out of curiosity, do you happen to know percentage or ratio of requests that come in that get denied because they don't meet those standards? Um, to be frank, we haven't had too many. To be honest with you, that, that was quite a pleasant surprise in the sense that a lot of the research, even from you know the kind of big pharma that I know is, is the boogeyman for a lot of people, um, but not only are there legal frameworks in place to to kind of guarantee this, but generally speaking, uh, the vast, vast majority of the requests that come in really are pro-patient and, and for, for the public good. I think there've honestly been maybe one or two in the last year um, where it either wasn't fully clear on what their end goal was, or it was, you know, as I said, one of these companies that, or, or, or types of companies that we've said we can't work with. But generally speaking, the vast, vast majority, I would say probably like 98% of them are actually pro-patient and looking to help help people. So with the two problems that you talked about that the foundation is trying to solve around access and bias, they're interrelated because lack of access to medical care, to, to quality medical care, then causes there to be less data for underserved populations, which then when you are, if you are sourcing data without keeping that in mind and being intentional, you probably don't get to that data and you're not, you don't access the, the more diverse data. And so in keeping that in mind, is there anything that you do in particular in order to ensure that you are getting more diverse patient data 
and and really are filling in those gaps of representation? Uh, absolutely. So it's it's maybe two-pronged here. On the one hand, we, we follow the request in the sense that, uh, I'll give you an example, we're working with Novartis, for example, um, and some other companies, some other large research companies who are doing uh, studies around cancer, for example, and one of them is doing a study for breast cancer. So obviously, the vast majority of people who, who have breast cancer are women. So already there, just due to the demand uh, from the research entity and the nature of the research, we're able to then target in on, let's say, uh, underrepresented demographic. But let's say more broadly, the way, the way to really solve this uh, that we believe is similar to blood donation. It must become kind of a, a global social movement where, or, or organ donation, you know, where people are aware that it exists and there's broad participation. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, that means building a, a global system that really is reaching out to as many different countries, as many different de demographics as possible. But then also, I, I can't release details because it's not signed and sealed, but working with certain um, ethnic groups, for example, or certain researchers who are trying to study uh, certain ethnic groups or certain nationalities who are typically underrepresented. And then not giving them preference, but really seeking after these sorts of um, projects that are really doing something a little bit different and are trying to uh, build that representation in the data. So um, obviously, if someone is trying to do pro-patient work, we will work with them without, you know, without question. But if someone is really trying to um, bring in a, an underrepresented demographic, then we kind of listen extra hard and are extra eager to try and make it work. Can a research facility make a request and say, we want this and this kind of data? Can you try to find that and collect it and find people that are of that representation? Yeah, absolutely. So so how we do that actually is that we have partnerships with hospitals and currently this is uh, in Poland, uh, which is where both our company and our organization are, are based, um, but we'll quickly expand over the next uh, six months to a year internationally. And so we actually have um, agreements with this hospital that upon uh, rec receipt of consent of this person, we can actually find their data specifically in, in their data banks and they'll send it over. So um, one of the, let's say, best applications of our system is actually targeted patient acquisition for researchers. You know, we're dealing with researchers that are um, studying the, the most rare diseases you can imagine, like maybe 20 people in, in a whole country have certain diseases. Um, and typically this has been very, very hard um, to, to be able to find these patients for, for them to participate in uh, genetic studies or clinical trials and, and this sort of thing. Um, and so by, by making, taking this broad approach and, and having the agreements with the hospitals in place, it becomes a lot easier to identify the right patient uh, with maybe the right history. And it can be really, I mean, when you see the data requests that come in, it starts with, okay, we're looking for people with lung cancer. That's a broad population. We're looking for people who are female with lung cancer a lot narrower. And then you start to get into like finer demographics and segmentation, and they must have this certain lifestyle, or they must have had it three years ago, but not more, and they must have a treatment history of this much. And you really start to narrow it down from potentially millions to maybe a few dozen, a few hundred. Um, and by, by taking this broad approach and having these partnerships in place with the healthcare facilities that are treating them, we're then able to actually pinpoint them and, and find those underrepresented and understudied demographics quite well, more easily than, than in the past, absolutely. So you had mentioned that one of the main barriers for people to donate their medical data was trust. And um, how do you explain to them or how, how do you convince them around, you know, by using blockchain technology, you're alleviating some of that, but that's something that's hard to explain to 
yeah. your average hospital patient. So how do you go about explaining to them how this is a different technology that will actually alleviate uh, worry? Yeah, it, it it's actually not been as tough as we thought in the sense that um, what really is necessary here is just public education. Um, first and foremost, I mean, you know, this is the Who's Your Data podcast, so I'm assuming your listeners are probably aware. You know, on the one hand, people have become more aware of their data and its importance, especially after things like uh, Cambridge Analytica or even the Edward Snowden, you know, leaks yeah. talking about what's actually happening with our data. Um, so, so that's definitely be a, been a positive, but people don't really understand the importance of their data, uh, even the value of their data. And so for us, we knew when we, when we started this, that this was going to be a challenge. Um, and really the, the solution, the only solution is um, public education. And this is why we're actually running public campaigns in hospitals talking with patients, uh, giving them materials that explain, let's say, the more intricate parts or the more difficult to understand parts. Uh, we're not giving them a, you know, introductory course on, on blockchain technology, but we do explain the technologies that we're using. Um, and so really public education is, is the primary key here. And, and people, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not stupid. Uh, when they actually, you sit down with them and you explain the importance of their data, you explain the uses, um, and you explain, as I said, the technologies that, that would be adopted or, or implemented to protect it. We've actually seen, so the, the original studies that we based our, let's say, aspirations of, uh, there are plenty of studies that look whether people are willing to share their data. Depending on the country in Europe, it's between 35 and 90%. And it's actually very interesting. It's a reflection often of their trust in their government in the sense that in the Nordic countries that have a high level of trust in their government and a high level of trust in, in private industry and their legislation and protections are in the 90 to 95% range of being willing to donate their data. In Poland, that number was 30 to 35%. Um, so it really does have, have an impact. Uh, there's some socio-cultural, socio-political elements to play here. But what we've actually found is that by going into the hospitals, running public education campaigns, and also by ensuring that there is an NGO nonprofit and a transparency council who are responsible to ensure that this is pro-patient use and that it's being protected, we've actually seen a, about an 80% success rate with, with Polish people in hospitals, uh, more than double what, what was actually predicted in the data. So it's not a magic formula. There, there, it's, it's very complex. It's also going to depend person to person. If somebody is more aware of data scandals and privacy issues, they may be more reluctant. But typically, those people are also more aware of the technological uh, possibilities to, to protect those privacies. So as I said, we've seen some great success just with talking with patients, actually having a physical presence in the hospital, uh, having materials for them to read. That really has been the driving driving force of alleviating some of that mistrust, some of that, some of those issues that we thought we would actually encounter a lot more. Ballpark figure, do you have an estimate of, you know, how many people to date have opted in? Ballpark figure, it's hard because we actually have uh, consents coming in every single day uh, through our hospitals. Uh, it's in the it's in the tens of thousands from my understanding at present. Currently though, we with our partnerships with hospitals, we have a reach of over 25 million potential patients, which is more than half of the Polish population. And what we've decided rather, you know, in, in the short term is to focus on the most pressing needs for data and go after the targeted people who represent that data. Um, of course, as I said, if we're going to solve the issues of bias and representation, we need to have a very broad approach. And that's kind of the, the end goal of this is to build the, the global data donation scheme. In the meantime, to ensure the success and proof of concept as we're still, let's say, in our first year and a half of operations has been to take a more targeted approach, uh, which, you know, that's why 
even though we have half the Polish population represented, we don't have millions of, of consents simply because the demand has been for a very specific subset of patients as of right now. But that will certainly grow. And uh, as I said, when, when we have an 80 to 90% sometimes uh, success rate with bringing patients on board when the time is right, uh, I'm very confident that that number will grow, uh, and especially as we move internationally. Yeah, of course. And I also, I think that you work at sort of, or you, I think, think about a different granularities in parallel, because certainly, you know, I think one of the, one of the powerful things about this is that it is, uh, you end up with a global view of many regional data sets that will address the specifics and the, spe the specific requirements for every region, right? Poland is going to be different than something in Scandinavia. The details of the studies are different, the requirements are different, but you end up, like you said, as a proof of concept, starting to build from a requirement-based approach, you will end up having enough data that globally will then cover a lot um, that you can then reuse. So I think, I mean, that makes a lot of sense in terms of the approach. You mentioned that, you know, you, you're starting in Poland and um, can you talk about why and then where you're planning to go next? Where is this expanding to? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reason we started in Poland, our founders are actually medical doctors, uh, all three of them, and they are Polish medical doctors. And the president of our foundation is uh, very, very respected in Polish healthcare. She's been named one of the top most 100 influential people in Polish healthcare, Forbes nominated. She also is the founder of the AI and Healthcare Coalition, which is kind of doing the same thing, ensuring that AI implementation in healthcare is pro-patient. Um, and they just had a, an absolutely incredible network in Poland um, to be able to make this happen because it really does require buy-in from civil society, nonprofit organizations, hospitals, and also the government as well. Um, so it, it really does take a lot of stakeholder negotiations and uh, interfacing and inter uh, institutional dialogues. And so being being Polish doctors and being well respected in Poland as as healthcare providers, that made the most sense. Uh, in terms of expansion, we have a few different countries that we're looking at, um, two of them being Italy and Austria, simply because there's a really important element that we haven't quite talked about yet, and that is the monetization of data and what happens there. Uh, as of right now, the monetization of data has zero benefits for the patients themselves. Uh, people don't get paid for participate, you know, for providing their medical data. It's uh, depending on the country, just collected um, and and traded, let's say, as a commodity. It's almost like a natural resource in some senses. Um, what's different? Uh, so, just a quick bit of background. In Europe, we have a new legislation, the Data Governance Act, and unfortunately, uh, they put a phrase in there that said if someone is giving their consent to their medical data to be used, it must be given freely and without reward. So it's in the legislation that you can't actually pay people to give consent. And the reasons for that, I think, are, 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 are uh, honorable in the sense that they didn't want people to be taken advantage of and to be paid just, you know, small amounts for what amounts to quite a valuable data set. I mean, depending on the data set, we could be talking about your medical data being worth between $100,000 and $5,000 per, per instance of use, right? So if it's used 10 times, you could really be talking about fifty grand here. And if there are companies going around saying, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks for your uh, your consent to use your medical data, you're, you're use, losing out by a thousandfold. So I understand the reasoning for it. Um, however, what it unfortunately does is cut people out of this enormous medical data economy. And in Europe alone, it's 100 billion euros a year. Worldwide, it's it's close to a trillion, uh, if not over. So it's an absolutely enormous market. Um, and so 
the reason why we're looking at Italy and Austria as potentially the next countries to expand into is that their courts have actually made a ruling um, after this legislation came out that said, no, our citizens have a right to monetize their data. Uh, so if you have any Italian or Austrian listeners out there, take note, you can actually legally uh, at some point in the near future monetize your own data. It could be your marketing data, your, your wearable data, or your medical data. So this for us is important because, you know, me personally, but also our foundation, we really believe that patients should be full stakeholders in the process, not just consulted, but they should really find tangible benefits, especially when we're talking about these eye-watering sums of money. Uh, we really think that people should be able to benefit from that tangibly and, and financially as well. So this is why we're looking at those countries. Uh, we're, we're of course very interested in the in the U.S. Um, U.S. population. It's it's quite a high demand data set, uh, but it's also important. And and there's a large uh, large amount of data that could be very useful to researchers doing, as I said, life saving work. So these are the countries that we're focused on. Um, and yeah, what what we hopefully want to do is set the standard and and again proof of concept that you can actually have an ethical and patient benefiting system where they actually can financially benefit too without being taken advantage of and really you know it just comes down to openness and transparency i mean if somebody knows that their medical data is worth thousands of dollars they're not going to sell it for 50 bucks right so education again really comes into play uh, and so what we would love to do is in these countries that have said yes it's legal to do so we would love to do the full system where uh, based on, let's say, the the original transaction for this data, the company or the the research entity who is putting the money on the table, so to speak, to to make the data flow happen, we want to see that go to not just the the hospital who's providing the data, not just an intermediary who's providing access to the data, but also the patients whose data the the whole system is built upon. And that's really important for us, and, and that's why we're looking at those countries specifically uh, for potential expansion. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's true, you know, in all other industries as well, when you're looking at like advertising and, uh, you know, people give away their data and it's fine. You know, if you're not paying for the, you know, for the service, then you are the product, right? So if exactly. you're using it, then they're tracking you and then you have all of your personal data. You're giving them your personal data, whether it's your financial data, your behavioral data as you're going along and they yep. make millions and billions of dollars on it and you see nothing, even though it is your own data as well as even today when you're looking at you know uh, everybody's talking about the uh, the generative ai and the large language models and training chat gpt and who benefits from it and who gets compensated for it not only do you you know lawsuits out there that are not only from you know artists and, and content creators that that the issue is not only that they did not give consent to have their data pulled in as training data but also the fact that they are not getting compensated for the content that is being used to train. The uh, approach of, you know, the individual is the owner of that data, especially when it's medical data. Like if my condition's yeah. special and it's worth a lot of money, then should be compensated. Absolutely. I, I fully agree. And, you know, this is quite personal for me in my, my former life. Let's say I was a published journalist, published photographer and a writer, and I have a lot of content out there floating around the web. Uh, and, you know, if if I were aware, I, I mean, it's very possible because uh, OpenAI and these other companies are just scooping up absolutely any data that is front facing or public facing on the Internet. You know, the the ethical approach maybe would have been to track that and ensure royalties go back to the, the people who are generating this content. And if you think about, um, let's say, people who have for their whole career published openly text or even images, and this has been their livelihood for decades, they could really be contributing a significant portion of their work, their IP, 
uh, to these companies who are just then profiting from it. And I, and I don't think that's right, uh, personally. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we, we, I mean, fortunately, we have the technologies to be able to solve this, such as blockchain is one of them, but there are others that could be used. Uh, unfortunately, they're not being used. And, and as you know, uh, I'm a little bit of a, uh, jaded in this sense when it comes to big tech and, and companies that suck up a lot of data. Uh, I wish they would take the ethical and let's say more difficult approach, the less profitable profitable approach, but they don't uh, more often than not. Um, but definitely when we're talking about, you know, LLMs or, or um, AI for healthcare, you know, now we're, as I said, getting into these really sensitive data sets um, where I, I think it's not just uh, unethical to be taking this data without permission, but it's unethical to be taking this specific data without permission at all. And I think it's even more so when we're talking about our healthcare data or other, you know, very sensitive data sets. Um, but also, as we said, more broadly, I think um, when we're talking about LLMs and just sucking up huge amounts of data, there are tools, there are technologies for them to be able to make it an equitable system to ensure royalties go to the people who are building their product with their data. Um, and it's not happening. So that for us, you know, we when we're talking about what we're trying to accomplish, which is really saving lives and finding cures for diseases, um, we knew that the ethical approach was the only way to go, not just from a like feel good moral sense uh, or viewpoint, but also because it's crucial for adoption. And we talked a little bit about trust and, and, and these sorts of things. If we want to build a global system of, of altruistic data being used to save lives, people need to be able to trust it. Um, and so that's why taking the ethical approach is really important for building critical mass. How do you think about once you get that data, how do you think about privacy as far as anonymization? What is it that you do? Like you said, you're legally responsible for that data once the patient has consented uh, to uh, giving it to you. How do you think about privacy and and before you pass it on to the researchers? Yeah, it's it's a, a really critical topic, and uh, there are some cases where um, personal data could be important, uh, or identify. Let's say personal personally identifiable data. Let's not just say your name and, and date of birth, but there's quite a broad range. Sometimes that is useful in the studies that are being performed, and in that case, there's actually a specific permission or a specific consent that would be sought for anything that is uh, personally identifiable. But generally speaking, actually, you don't really need uh, the, the personal information for the studies. And so, you know, for us, it means spending a lot of time and R&D and, and man hours or, or human hours on ensuring that our anonymization techniques are, are absolutely cutting edge. Um, there's also, you know, kind of this growing field of uh, synthetic data where you take uh, large amounts of real data and you kind of mix and match and change things to the point where you haven't changed the representation of the data, but it's been de-identified in that sense uh, and, and kind of mixed around enough that putting it back together is not possible. So that's another another very uh, kind of interesting, more new development when it comes to synthetic data that, that we, we also are, are very excited about because it does solve some of these issues. Uh, and then of course, cybersecurity is absolutely you know crucial for us and ensuring that there's air gapping and physical keys and it's not just sitting on a, you know, uh, internet connected server somewhere that a that a talented hacker could get in and, and cause some serious damage. So a lot of those precautions uh, are, are absolutely in play. And it really is kind of a, I mean, I don't want to give the exact mix and match that we're doing, because um, I, I, I assume that would opening up to a certain vector. But all that to say, it really does take multiple layers, multiple technologies, and a mix and match of those technologies to ensure um, that 
the privacy and the anonymity of someone is is absolutely guaranteed. Of course, if we think about quantum computing and some of the developments coming up, it gets a lot more complicated, and 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 we'll respond to that as it you know, kind of enters into the the uh, common usage. But but as of right now, using just the most cutting edge privacy techniques, uh, cybersecurity. OPSEC, everything to ensure that there's not somebody sitting at the end of a terminal somewhere that can access that data or, or de-anonymize it if there was some sort of uh, leak or anything like that. But definitely, you know, uh, if you look at some of the, the big data centers and how their OPSEC goes and ensuring that there's air gapping and physical keys and access control, even physical access control to who can actually touch the computer that the data is, is stored on or the hard drives, all of these are, are in place to ensure that, you know, privacy and anonymity are, are absolutely protected. Out of curiosity, um, are there research methods that you vet as well? Would you say, you know what, we're, we're not down for like using our data to train LLMs just because nowadays it's still, there's still too much uncertainty with the results and how credible they are and, and reliable. And um, you know, do, you, do you think about the research methods that are getting used in these proposals? Not in terms of shutting off any one particular area, um, you know, because I think uh, it, I, I, I fully understand where your question comes from in terms of, let's say, newer newer methods or newer technologies and being unsure of the implications. Um, but I think for us, really, the primary lens is, is in analyzing whether it's going to be pro-patient. So, for example, uh, I lived in the U.S. Your, your listeners can probably hear I have a bit of an American accent. I'm, I'm not American, but I lived there for a long time, uh, which means that most of my adult life was actually spent in the American healthcare system. And even though I was employed, had medical insurance, I still several times in my life didn't seek medical treatment because of the cost. Because uh, you have a you know fifteen thousand dollar deductible and you just don't yeah, have the insane. cash to to pay it right yes, or, or or an ambulance at three grand and you just can't can't pay for it. So one area which I'm actually personally really excited about is the potential for LLM and and AI to actually fill that gap. And if you think yeah. about primary care and the first touch of care, let's say you have what feels like a sinus infection, you're not really sure. Maybe it's a cold. Maybe it's nasal cancer. You you really don't know. Yeah. But you have you know this kind of uh, light touch or or easy to diagnose um, illness that based on the symptoms, most junior doctors in the first year could could diagnose very, very easily. Um, these are the sorts of candidates for me the, that really could be filled by LLM and AI. And in a perfect world, I'm sure it won't have it exactly like this, but it has the potential if, if we're talking about an open source LLM that is serving as a first touch uh, triage that is taking in, you know, very straightforward symptoms and giving you most likely outputs, you don't actually need to go to a hospital to be diagnosed with a cold. You could very foreseeably in the near future talk to an LLM and AI and they could be able to diagnose you with a high level of accuracy. Um, as we saw during the pandemic, limitation of physical access to hospitals can and, and does happen. And therefore, you know, as we talked about previously, um, there is a, a, an issue when it comes to cost, when it comes to seeking care. And when we're talking about very simple to diagnose issues, colds, you know, cuts, bruises, this sorts of thing, we could actually see a future in which LLMs and AI in a free way could actually fulfill and fill these issues. What this means is instead of people not seeking medical care because they can't afford it, maybe they would be talking to a free or very low cost LLM who's able to diagnose those those easy issues. So so the, I, long story short, this is why I, I don't think cutting off any specific methodology uh, is, is the right way to go, because there are applications of LLM and other technologies um, that absolutely could be pro patient and give people better access to healthcare. 
and and these address the concerns that you have that the foundation has uh the access that it gives to to healthcare to at least frontline healthcare in places yeah. that are um healthcare deserts whether in the United States or in other countries is something that um is probably going to be revolutionary so that makes a lot of sense. When we talked, you had mentioned that one of the major initiatives that you're working on is uh, what you called ethical sourcing of data. And that that is a big initiative that that is happening. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means in the context of medical data? Even as we touched on before, you know, big tech, private companies don't have a great track record when it comes to ethics. And, and partially, this is just the nature of in my opinion, capitalism, that when you're dri driven by profits and ensuring that your, your shareholders get profits, you tend to make decisions that don't benefit or are not ethical or don't benefit the general public. So for us, we kind of realize that we have, as I said, two ways to go about this. Either we go the, the Google route and just suck up as much data as possible and, and sell it to the highest bidder, or we take the ethical route. And, and as I mentioned previously, that's important for adoption. And what's really actually quite exciting is that if we, and, and this is our goal, is to set the standard for data access in terms of the rules, who can use it, as I said, making sure that healthcare uh, insurers are not use, using it to reduce someone's healthcare. By setting these standards, we can actually set the, the, the playing rules for uh, healthcare research worldwide. You know, there was a lot of debate in Europe, and it's still kind of ongoing, to be honest with you, whether consent is the efficient way to do it and whether there are situations that are more important uh, than actually seeking uh, consent from patients. So one example is, for example, during a pandemic, uh, and you have um, tens or hundreds of thousands of people potentially in, in serious or, or critical or, or, you know, dying uh, conditions. Um, and therefore, you know, there's this kind of move towards, well, in that case, public health comes over consent. I can understand that. Uh, but when we're talking about research without kind of this pressing time crunch, it's not a public emergency. What we're actually trying to do is set the standard and prove that seeking consent can be efficient using technologies. Um, and it is crucial for, for adoption and, as, as I've said, building critical mass. So what we're doing and building along with our patient organizations, but also other organizations. So, for example, we've partnered with uh, Genomes who are doing privacy-focused genomic sequencing. So think 23andMe, but without selling your data to uh, private companies. Um, we're trying to build a coalition of, of organizations and companies that are committed to the ethical treatment of data. Um, so we have a, a manifesto that we've published, which gives or, or, or states that we believe that patients and people have certain rights, the right to decide over their data, the right to revoke the consent to their data, uh, the right to, as we have in, in European law and, and they have in California under the CCPA, the right to remove data about yourself from the internet if you desire. Um, and so it's really focused around the, the individual and citizen rights uh, and ensuring that the systems that we build are compatible and, and first and foremost, you know, keeping these rights in mind. Um, so, so that's really for us, you know, uh, kind of the, the another of the long term goals is to, to build the standards for, for engagement when it comes to data uh, and doing so with other ethical companies who are, are willing to commit and sign our manifesto and say, yes, I believe people have the right to privacy, to remove their data, to give or revoke consent. You know, uh, we have a list, I think, of about 10 or 11 different rights that people have uh, and building a coalition that that believe in these principles and, and commit actually to upholding them. That is such a refreshing view. Yeah, it's it, it, medical data is, is a mess overall. But, you know, I've been in the privacy space for a long time. And I remember, you know, in the in the mid 2000s, for example, before Edward Snowden leaks and all this kind of stuff, you know, I was telling people, listen, the government's collecting your data. And it was in the realm of conspiracy the theory. People would just kind of yeah. brush you off and say, nah, that's 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 nonsense. You know, it's uh, um, so 
But over the last 15 years, there's really been a fundamental shift um, in, in the public consciousness and awareness of, of the importance of privacy and data. And some people are just never going to care. And, you know, we can do our best to convince them. But I would absolutely say that we have seen a paradigm shift in people uh, people's understanding of data and the importance of it and the importance of privacy. Um, so, you know, it's been a long time coming, but there's a lot of people who have kind of laid this pathway. And, and I'm actually friends with one of the Cambridge Analytica um, whistleblowers, you know, for example, uh, and she's done a lot to to ensure that this enters into the public consciousness. Uh, and so what we're really doing is kind of building off of that and bringing it into medical data, which other than maybe your location data is, and, and your biometrics really is your most sensitive data set. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think ultimately the uh, sharing of that private information, you know, I don't think that it is inherently evil in that, it, it, you know, from the advertising world, it's, it's this balance of you know, either being very, very private or having convenience because everything that you do in terms of like, you know, turning on cookies so that you don't have to uh, log in every time you go to a website or that it rem remembers your preferences, et cetera. It makes our life much easier, but it comes at a cost that we're we're sharing data with whoever it is that's collecting it, right? Um, and having the trust that it's not being used for Anything evil, I think, goes a long way to making our own lives better. And of course, in this case, um, helping humanity. So I think that's really wonderful. Now, if somebody's out there listening, one of our one of our listeners all over the world, and they're interested in partnering or learning more about the foundation, what kind of partnerships do you have with, with people, organizations? What are you looking for? And how can people contact you and work with you? Absolutely. So our, our, let's say, primary public facing uh, tool that we use and our website is donateyourdata.io. And on that website, we have, let's say, three stakeholder groups or three uh, audiences that we're talking to. Number one is the general public who can sign up as of right now for a waiting list globally to express their interest in donating their data personally. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll keep using the analogy of as like being a blood or organ donor saying, I would like to give my data to to medical science and to help people. Uh, and that's absolutely, as I said, we're, we're in hospitals, we're talking to patients, we really absolutely want to know that people have interest. And of course, we'll we'll use that waiting list, it has a, a drop down box for which country you live in, uh, which of course, we will keep private and not share with anyone. But we're using that to, to figure out where there is the most demand, uh, so that we can ensure that data donation, medical data donation goes there uh, in the near future. Uh, but we also have pages for either uh, healthcare providers, hospitals, clinics, anyone, biobanks, anyone who has some sort of data that they would like to share um, or, or would like to participate in this program. Uh, and it has more information for, for a healthcare provider who might be interested in joining the network. Uh, and imagine it kind of like nodes and just hooking into the network. Uh, and of course, then we would seek consent from any of their patients. It's not like they just open up their data banks and start flowing data. It's all based on that consent from the patient. And then finally, we also have in the uh, access to ethical data for their own research, their own pro-patient research purposes. Uh, we absolutely would love to talk to them. But, you know, honestly, this for us is building a, a large global social movement. And anyone who has interest in data, uh, even if you're a key opinion leader uh, and you have an audience that you would like to introduce the topic to, um, we're absolutely interested in talking to to anyone who is interested or or would like to participate in in uh, medical data altruism. Well, I'm uh, luckily there. This, there was this one podcast host that you agreed to talk to as well uh, because this is <laughs> a fascinating 
topic and I'm very excited about it. Thank you, Denny, for coming on the podcast. Hopefully we'll have you back again with, with more news. Yeah, Gilad, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's a topic I'm very passionate about, but it's some something that's really growing and starting to to build some awareness. And, and I appreciate you helping us do that. And I really would encourage your listeners, you know, to to take a l- little bit, uh, take a look into what we're doing and and maybe participate because at the end of the day, we're talking about a use case where data is saving lives. Like there are people alive today who can say thanks to data and thanks to algorithms and thanks to medical robotics. I'm alive today. And, and that's, we're trying to make sure that more and more people can say that. So uh, it's been a fascinating discussion for me as well. And, and I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can talk again in the future. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who's your data now at gmail.com. That's who's your data now, all one word at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?